0: We are in Acts chapter 9 today, and, and one of the things I found while preaching through Acts is that it's a very choppy book. I don't know if you've realized that, you ever tried to read through it, it's kind of skipped from one scene to the next, and over to this guy, and back, and all over the place. And, and it's really, when you're, when you're laying it out to preach, it can become difficult to break into portions that really make sense. Uh, and I say that not because it matters to you, you don't have to break it up, We just go with it. Uh, but that way you understand that I'm not an absolute schizophrenic as we kind of will hit on a couple of different topics today. Um, and that's what we're going to see today. There'll be at least three different events that we, we see today. We're going to see uh, what happens to Saul after his conversion, really, what, what happens next. Uh, we're also going to see, you know, how the Jews respond to him, how Christians respond to him, what, what his life looks like for a little bit. Um, and then we're going to see God work through Peter to do some amazing things, to, to heal a paralyzed man. Uh, to raise a, a woman from, from the dead. Um, and we're going to look at this. Uh, the way we're going to do it is one section after another, and then we'll read the text, and then we'll unpack it. And we'll do it because if you're like me, if we read it all at the beginning, I'm going to forget half of it by the time we get to it, and we'll have to read it again anyway. Uh, and so we're going to do it that way. And so first, though, I'll just give you a quick review from last week, if you weren't here. Uh, Saul was on his way to Damascus. Uh, and he was on his way to capture Christians and drag them back to Jerusalem, where they're going to be put on trial, maybe put to death, and, and on that journey, Jesus confronts him, and this, this light that is just so bright, brighter than the noonday sun, um, and, and from that moment, Saul knows the truth, that Jesus is real, that he's alive, that he's the son of God, um, and, and as a result, he's blinded for three days, and they still take him into Damascus, the city he was going to, Uh, And God then sends a man named Ananias to greet him and to pray for him. And in the moment that that the two of them meet, uh, these things like scales fall from his eyes. He's able to see again. uh, And he is then baptized into the covenant community. And that's where we left off. So that's kind of where it stops. Uh, He's three days into his new life in Christ. And and we'll pick up after that. So we'll see what happens. Our text is, uh, I tell you this real quick. uh, Our text keeps calling him Saul. So I'm going to call him Saul. Uh, But I want you to realize this is the same guy that we know as the Apostle Paul. Um, So these are different names, Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic, Greek. Um, So we'll see that. And so starting in Acts chapter 9, we're going to read Acts 9, 9, 19b. You don't usually see b in verses. It just means the second half. You'll see it in your Bible. The break is kind of weird. Somewhere back when monks were putting verses into this, they should have broken it differently than they did. Uh, remember the words themselves are God's holy word, not the little numbers in there. Uh, so Acts 19, no, Acts nine, verse 19 B to read it out of here. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, "He is the Son of God." And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And and has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through the opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Father, we are not Paul, we are not Peter, and yet you have called us to, and you have provided for us faith, just as you did each of them. May we find encouragement in this text today by seeing your faithfulness to those whom you have called to faith. We ask that you enlighten us through the Holy Spirit, that we might better understand this portion of your word. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So for those of you that came to faith later in, in life, do you remember what you did immediately after realizing that, uh, that Jesus was real, that he died for your sins? You ever think back, like what was your first response? What you, would what'd you go and do? Um, I was that way. I think back. It's hard to really put any memory to that. Uh, you may not remember it. It might be that you simply rested for the first time in your life. First time you really felt some sense of Peace. Uh, I ask that not because I necessarily think there's some response we're supposed to have. I think there's a variety of responses we see people have. But, but I've noticed over the years that uh, what I do see in Saul here is really not uncommon for what we see in a lot of people. This, this need to, to go and to tell someone, uh, anyone, everyone that Jesus is real and, and we do so out of this, this fear for them. You, you want them to have what you have. You're worried for where they're at. And, and it kind of uh, just springs into this, this sense of just boldness and, and speaking the truth. And, and that's why, you know, honestly, I love meeting, interacting with new converts uh, because they're so quick to speak about Jesus. They're so quick to, to do so with this great confidence. And I just love it. Um, in fact, I, I really wish I understood why we ever stopped being that bold. Why we ever stop being just so excited to be redeemed? I don't know if it's because we, we hear such negative responses. You go out bold and you're like, let me tell you about Jesus. And they're like, eh. uh, I don't know. Something discourages along the way. And, and that's because, you know, not everyone can see the value of Christ, no matter how amazingly you de- describe to someone. No matter how passionately you are, they can't necessarily see it. Um, you know, maybe we forget sometimes uh, what it means to be forgiven of, of cosmic treason. And we forget what that means. Uh, just the other day, Laura and I were waking up and it was freezing. I know, hard for you to imagine, uh, but it was freezing. And Laura used this, this remote control that we have on this space heater now to actually turn the heater on. Uh, the day before it didn't work, we didn't do it right, but uh, <clears throat> it worked and we just recently got it and this heater turns on and I was just so grateful for this remote uh, that we could turn this heater on. And at the same time, I, I started thinking, you know, 100 years earlier, sitting here in the same place, to have heat in the morning, we would have had to get up and get wood and keep putting the fire all night. Um, and, and really, <clears throat> that's the way we would have had warmth in the morning. And so the fact that uh, even the rest of our house is heated by central air, uh, that's something that I've become so accustomed to that I have failed to appreciate just how amazing that is. Um, in fact, if I'm honest, I, I rarely tell people about the heater in our house. I just, it's not something I talk about much. I I, kind of figure, you know, you know about heaters. You've all seen them. You've heard of them, right? Uh, I figure, you know, you probably don't care to hear me talk about heaters. Uh, And that's kind of the way I just think about it. I think sometimes we do the same thing with God. I think when we don't see God bringing people to faith, when we don't see that fresh in our lives, we forget just how amazing it is. We forget to appreciate that. And so here's the deal. As we look at Saul in this text today, I, I want you to do this. I want you to be excited. I know that's an emotion. I can't really call you to that, right? But I can. Um, and I'm saying I want you to be excited because I want you to be very aware of this. Don't feel guilty. There's a sense we see Paul and we see this boldness to go and speak the gospel. And our response is, is to just kind of shy away and feel guilty. I'm not Paul, I'm a terrible person, I never speak like he does. And, and so I want you to see this from a different angle. I want you to understand, uh, to see just the joy that he experiences as his weight is lifted off of him, uh, so much so that that's why he speaks about the gospel with such joy. There's not some responsibility of weight on his shoulders, it's just an absolute joy. Uh, in a sense, I, I want us to feel that, that now famous saying that as, as Christians we are, we're simply beggars showing other buggers where we have found bread uh, so let's consider this text a little further I uh, imagine as we think about this story it was a very strange thing for the Christians uh, the disciples in Damascus uh, to get to know Saul he was only there a few days, a little while but uh, there was this, this fear at times right? what's he going to do to us? there's this fear of who he was I, I imagine the more I thought about this I thought there's probably some temptation of bitterness towards Paul too Kind of this, he, he's been persecuting the church, the guy's been a jerk, and, and yet God calls him, speaks to him, appears to him. Why not me? Like, why Paul? Why not me? And so there's this temptation towards bitterness. Um, it would have been easy just to see how unfair that seems. And then in verse 20, we see that immediately he stands in the synagogue and he begins proclaiming Jesus. Um, I don't know if we can get our heads around how strange this is that Paul is now proclaiming Jesus. As maybe you can imagine, maybe try to imagine, you know, Hillary Clinton standing up at the Democratic Convention and saying, Donald Trump is the guy to vote for. You can't imagine that, can you? And, and even if you could, and that would not be a good enough illustration for what we're talking about here, maybe a, a better one would be like the head of ISIS. I don't even know who that is now, uh, but the head of ISIS standing up at their next gathering being, Jesus is Lord. Wow, that would not go well for him. Um, The only thing that could possess him to make a statement like that is if he was absolutely certain that that was true. And that's the case with Paul here. He's so sure of the gospel that he has absolutely no fear of professing it publicly. That's why in one of my favorite verses, Philippians 121, we went through that book last year, uh, Saul was able to make that uh, amazing statement, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because fear just drives, or faith drives out fear, rather. And it's easy to see, then, why in verse 21 in our text today, not in Philippians, but here, that all who heard Saul were amazed, it says. Amazed both at what he had to say and amazed at who was saying it. Because, like we said, Saul's reputation of hating Christians had preceding him. His love of Jesus had not preceded him. And so you can imagine as he spoke, it was this, this sense of wonder at, at how, you know, Paul's thinking or Saul's thinking. How have I not seen this in the scriptures before? It's kind of like those, those fuzzy posters. I know I mention these sometimes, but um, made up of the little pictures. And you, you kind of look at them and you can't make sense. And eventually you see it. And as soon as you see it, you think, how did I not see that 10 minutes ago? It's clear as day. I can see it. And, and yet you couldn't. Well, that's, that's how Paul sees the truth of the gospel at this moment. Verse 22, we read that he confounded the Jews. I don't know that I've ever confounded anyone. Uh, but it says he confounded the Jews by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Confounded, that means to perplex the mind. That's, you know, in our modern vernacular, that mind-blowing kind of idea. I, I, I see it, I don't understand it kind of idea. And, and they're perplexed because, uh, as Acts 18.28 later on tells us, speaking about this same story, that, um, Paul was, or Saul was showing that Jesus was the Christ, and he was explaining it through the scriptures. He's going through the Old Testament and showing them, look, it's talking about Jesus. Now I think we hear this word proving even, and it can kind of catch us off guard. Um, My first thought is, Luke, why didn't you write down what he said so we can prove Jesus too? Um, We almost imagine this is that so-called magic bullet of evangelism. Uh, but remember, proving doesn't always convince people the truth, does it? I, I can prove an algebraic equation to you. I can't, actually. Alexia probably could. Some of you math smarties could, but I couldn't. Uh, but you could, right? And, and someone could see it and, and be like, yeah, it's, no. Even though you can prove something, doesn't mean you can convince something that, someone that it's true. And that's the case here with, with Saul. He's proven from Scripture that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, it's the same thing Jesus did on the, on the road with his disciples after his resurrection, showing them in the Old Testament how it speaks about him. The same thing Philip did with the eunuch when they're in Isaiah reading. He's saying, look, it's talking about Jesus. And I think sometimes we, we, we still see these things in scriptures and we're just amazed that we didn't see it there before. I don't know if that's your experience, it, um, but it's often an experience and you think, I just want to show everyone. I remember in college, Laura and I experienced this in regards to the sovereignty of God. You know, before I would have said, yeah, God is sovereign. He is sovereign over sunsets and he is sovereign over storms or floods or things of that nature. But I would have said, you know what? He's not sovereign over the hearts of men and women. And when I finally saw that in the scripture, uh, that God's absolute sovereignty over everything, I began to see God's sovereignty throughout the Bible. And I'd see these verses and think, how did I not see that before? I'd read the Bible before. And I couldn't make sense out of how I'd missed it. Uh, You know, not long ago, confession, I've actually read John Green's books um, but in one of his books, there's a character named Hazel, and she makes a statement. She says, sometimes you read a book and it fills you with this weird evangelical zeal. And you become convinced that the shattered world will never be put back together unless and until all living humans read this book. I had that sense that everyone needed to see this in the scriptures, that you know, what I found was that I would want to sit down with friends and basically prove from Scripture what I'm trying to say here about the sovereignty of God over all creation. And I'd be giddy just waiting for them to see it. And more often than not, they would just, yeah, I don't see it. I don't see it. And I mean, you know, some of these verses, Psalm 115, 3, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Or John 6:65, 6, where Jesus says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Proverbs 21. one. This one really got me. Um, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Okay, so that's a bit of a rabbit trail. I got that. But I want you to understand, I want us to understand that, that even though Saul proves to them, shows them in Scripture that Jesus is the Son of God, there it is in Scripture. He's showing it to them. Uh, they are still overwhelmingly spiritually blind and would not be able to see it. At least some of them, that was the case. Uh, and the truth is, that's why when we come to faith, we don't pat ourselves on the back like, Brian, you are a genius. You see this. You understand this. Um, you know, we don't do that. No, we, we praise God because we, we believe and we receive this gift from God. That's, that's also why when we share the gospel with someone and they believe the gospel, we don't pat ourselves on the back. You are such a genius the way you do this. You know, man, the way you made this sense to them. We don't do that because we know that. We we know that we might plant. We know that we might water. But God causes the growth of faith. All right, so let's look at this next section. Verse 23. Uh, It's worth noting here, this is not talking about every Jew uh, and every Jewish person. Uh, from this point on, in, in Acts, in fact, uh, the word of the Jews is going to become kind of a, just a term that Luke uses that refers to a small, small group of, of Jewish people who are adamantly against Christianity. Um, and so it looks like it's just a derogatory statement against all Jews in the world. That's not the case here. Uh, but as we see here just how the Jews respond uh, to Paul is, is very different, uh, to this very different Saul, rather. Uh, now you remember that what what Saul's plan was to stop the spread of Christianity. Remember he had he had this plan and he was putting it in action. We're going to find the Christians and we're going to kill the Christians because things that are dead don't spread. Um, and so it's really not a surprise to us when we realize that the men that he was traveling with um, previously associated with that their plan now to stop Paul is they will kill him. Uh, there's some irony here that the chief persecutor has now found himself to be the primary target of of their persecution Uh, you know we we still hear stories like this all the time Uh, in many parts of the world if someone converts from Islam to Christianity no matter how close the relationship with others before it is suddenly severed, Uh, might suddenly face uh, punishment, even death for their faith Uh, I've heard stories, read stories of even parents responding to their own children this way uh, and the sad truth is that, that many over the last 2,000 years since this, this time period that we're looking at uh, have been murdered for their faith, put to death for their faith. And uh, one of the things I find most encouraging is that the church still exists all over the world, uh, even where those threats are incredibly high. Uh, and so even though Saul here lost many of his friends and his, his group of Pharisees, they won't talk to him, they want to kill him, things of that nature, uh, what we see is that God has provided for him brothers and sisters in the Lord, Uh, And they find a way to protect him, even when he finds himself under the the target of the the Jews at this point. And uh, so when the Jews plan to capture him, they're watching the gates. They're going to get him when he tries to go out. Um, You know, they find a way to get him out. They put him in a basket, and they lower him in the wall. Uh, You remember that story? Uh, It's a really familiar one, one of Jesus' great, 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 great great grand relatives. Uh, Rahab did the same thing for the spies in Jericho, uh, and he escapes because of this new family that God's provided him with, so uh, so he leaves Damascus and he heads to Jerusalem, uh, and our story jumps again. Okay, this is almost quantum leap-like uh, passage. Following along, starting in verse 26, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how, on the road, he had seen the Lord. Who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus, so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him, and when their brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea, and they sent him out off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied. So what a conflicting moment that must have been. It's, it's kind of like when you see the big friendly dog walk in and find a, a bunch of kittens. Um, you know, the dog's thinking, oh, I'm so excited to see you. You look like fun and uh, real friendly-like. And the cats are thinking, no, 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 you're a beast, you'll kill me. Um, that's kind of the feeling as Saul shows up in Jerusalem. He's excited to meet these new brothers and sisters in Christ, and they are terrified of him. It seems odd that uh, they've seen God do so many amazing things, and, and yet they seem to think that God couldn't or didn't or wouldn't redeem Saul. Um, many of them basically believe he's not really a Christian. This is a trap. Something's up here. They just don't trust him. Uh, and yet there's this one man who does Barnabas. The last time we heard of Barnabas was Acts chapter 4. He's the one who was nicknamed the son of encouragement. That's a good nickname if you're looking for one. If not. Doesn't run off the tongue, but it's a very good one. Uh, And so this Barnabas goes out of his way to welcome this scary new guy into the community. Uh, One day, that might be your role. Uh, You might need to welcome people into a community to take an outsider and and lead them so that they might be welcomed as an insider. In this case here, though, the the fear is very warranted. Uh, None of us could really challenge or question why they would be afraid. Uh, during Saul's time in Jerusalem, he continues to preach boldly in the name of Jesus. Again, just standing up with no fear. Uh, particularly against this group called the Hellenists. This was the, the group of Greek-speaking Jews who were violently opposed to Christianity. Likely the same people who riled up the, the crowds against Stephen before he got stoned to death. Uh, so there's some irony that now they're turning against Paul. Uh, Saul. Saul again here welcomes the focus of, of these death threats. And, uh, and again, his new community... Protects him in this moment. They find him a, a way of escape, and they find him a place of refuge that he can go to. And that's the last we hear of Paul until the end of chapter eleven. Again, with this choppy jumping around. I I do want you to see though here in verse thirty one that that God gives the church in the region this region this great peace, and that the church is is growing. And a big reason that the peace comes here is that the most prominent person persecuting the church has has now become a member in the church. What an odd thing. Uh, Paul, letter in a, later in his letter to the Galatians, quotes what people are saying about him at this time. And he says uh, that he, they were saying this. They were saying, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. What a beautiful thing. Um, so the next time you're wondering if, if God could give faith to someone, remember that indeed crazier things have happened. Uh, this is one of them. We're reading about it right now. This is the crazier things. Um, the church in this text, though, is and these texts are are positively referred to here as walking in the fear of the Lord. Uh, it's a word we see and we see it often, so we tend to glaze right over it. Uh, it's what all true churches hope for: for this simple fear of the Lord, in the sense of of being an absolute all of Him, uh, and the comfort that comes from being filled with the Holy Spirit. It speaks of here. Uh, again, let's skip forward, verses thirty-two to thirty-five. This next passage, this is one of those choppy transitions I mentioned. Uh, Focus changes to Peter. We haven't heard of him in a while. We're going to jump into what's going on with Peter. Uh, It says, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon, Saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So we see the word saints there, uh, the saints who live in Lydda. When you see that, think just the term Christians. And I point that out because of the, uh, the Catholic error of only referring to certain accomplished Christians as saints. Uh, it's, it's been generally accepted in our culture, but it's absolutely wrong. Uh, saints here literally means the holy ones. Uh, and so it's called so because of the holiness of Christ that's applied to us. Uh, not because of their personal holiness. And so when it's talking here, it's not talking about a small group of super holy Christians in Lydda. It's talking about all the Christians in Lydda. Uh, And so when Peter goes to the Christians in Lydda, he finds a a paralyzed man, that's someone who can't walk, can't move. Uh, And Peter declares to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Uh, The distinction here is very important. Peter's making clear that the power to heal him resides in Jesus Christ and not in Peter. Uh, You might wonder... Maybe you do. My mind wonders these things sometimes. You know why? Why you can't walk into a, a hospital in town and just put them out of business? Just you know, Jesus heals you. You're healed. You're healed. You're healed. Uh, everyone walks out, and the hospital goes out of business. And, and the reason you can't do that is that the power to do that healing belongs to Jesus, and He has not given it to you. He has not given it to me. Uh, back in in Luke chapter nine verse one, we learned that Jesus did give it to Peter, uh, and He gave it to the other apostles. Speaking there, Jesus. Uh, says this, it reads, uh, And he, Jesus, called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and all diseases. Uh, so there you you have the transfer where God has given them the ability to do this in his name. Uh, and so while God certainly still can heal in miraculously ways, uh, there's not a man or woman walking the earth today who is able to be the cause of that uh, in the sense that they have the, the gift of healing or something like that. Uh, sometimes, and I, and I want you to see this in the text, and miracles are amazing, the works of God, they show us his power, they show us his might, uh, but sometimes we, we miss the point of things because the miracles are so big and so amazing to look at. And in this case, um, it, the miracles were used of the Lord to prove the gospel, to be a witness uh, to these witnesses. Uh, the result and the point was that the whole town came to faith in this particular one, Uh, And and they saw his power and his grace poured out on this man. And so uh, it's worth noting that Aeneas here was a a Christian before this. And we point that out so you don't think that he only believes because God made his life easy, uh, because he was healed. You see, he had faith in Christ, even when he could have looked at the circumstances and and wondered, why has God given me such a terrible lot in life Um, before any of that healing happened? Uh, So let's look at this last portion of our text today. Uh, I'll start reading verse 36, a little longer here. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and he went with them. And when he arrived they took him to the upper room. All the windows stood beside him, widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside, and he knelt down and he prayed. And turning to the body he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Okay, so you want to laugh at her name, right? Dorcas? I can't be the only one that's so immature that I still find it kind of funny. Um, I mean, it is kind of funny. So the way it works here is Tabitha is her Aramaic name, and Dorcas is the Greek version of her name, kind of like John or Juan, Uh, Juan would be the Spanish version. Uh, So it means gazelle. Um, Pretty, right? Uh, You get two Dorcases. you have twin gazelles. Uh, It's certainly one of the lesser used biblical names. We don't hear it very often. Uh, I've met about a trillion Johns, no offense Johns, Um, Matthews, Rachels, things of that nature. Uh, Only once in my entire life have I met a woman named Dorcas. Uh, She was a librarian at the the library at Texas A&M and she seemed about a hundred years old and that's the only way I could explain why she had this name but uh, to be honest I was 20 so everyone over 30 seemed like 100 years old at the time which means I'm probably 100 years old to some of you. Uh, Really though it's a it's a shame that it is such a funny name in our language right Um, because when you start to to see what it describes or who she is um, this is the kind of person that you really hope your daughter grows up to be, you know. You, you want your daughter to grow up to be a Dorcas. Um, because it says she was full of good works and charity. You ever wonder why it says that? Why do you think it tells us about her good works and her charity? What does that matter to the story? I, I ask because I think there's this temptation to see that and, and wonder, does, is this proving why she was worthy to be like, did she earn the, the right to be brought back from death? Um, see, the reason Luke tells us her character is to to help us understand why so many people were upset, why this one individual had such a far-reaching influence uh, that, that the people cared. And the widows there are showing Peter what she made for them. Uh, they're talking about how much they love her, and, you know, look what she's done for us. We just miss her so much, and... Um, you know, it's not the point of the the story here, but it it certainly reflects on our, on your Christian maturity if if many people miss you when you've died. I don't mean that they come to your funeral. A lot of people feel compelled to do that anyway, but that they truly miss you. Unfortunately, the opposite's also true. Um, now, in the midst of this miracle, I want you to see something. Uh, Dorcas didn't bring herself back from the dead. Peter didn't put together a PowerPoint on the resurrected life and present it to everyone. It's not a four-week series of any sort. Um, What he does here, and this is where the miracles can distract us from seeing what's happening here, what he does here is he used the ordinary means of grace. Remember, the ordinary means of grace is the word of God, the sacraments, and prayer. Peter kneels down here uh, in this symbol of humility before the Lord, and then he prayed, and God answered. She then responds to these words of his, Tabitha, arise. You can imagine in that moment because of how badly these people missed her. Uh, just the tears of joy that, that, that would have been filling that room from all the people who came to see that their friend uh, Tabitha or Dorcas was coming back to life. And, and the point in all this really is the same as every other story we've seen today. I don't know if you realize it's going through this, but God is working and people are coming to faith. Remember, Saul preaches, people get saved. Uh, Aeneas is healed, people come to faith, Dorcas is awoken from the dead, uh, and and many believed in the Lord. We're seeing this cause and effect over and over again, okay? Um, Now, going through this, I'll I'll tell you this, Uh, some weeks during sermon preparation, I'll I'll go to Laura at some point, and and I'll be like, you know what, I've explained the text, I think I've helped people understand what it's going to be, what this means, but I can't figure out how to land this plane. Can't figure out where to really come down and make any sense out of out of this, uh, and so that passage just kind of circles in my head for a long period of time, and uh, and my mind just looking for this landing strip. And this was certainly one of those weeks, and and here's why: because if you're reading this text and you're like me, sometimes you read these stories in Acts, and and you just think about your own life and think, my life is so disappointing compared to this. We read about miracles, paralyzed men getting healed, about women returning from the dead, about these mass numbers of people coming to faith, the boldness of Paul preaching the gospel. And, and, and then we think about our own life in this past week. And we think, well, what happened in my week? I went, I went grocery shopping. I made dinner. Uh, I went to work and I sent some emails. Somebody frustrated me. Couldn't remember my password. Uh, you know, things are going on. I, I held a child that was crying for some reason that made no sense. All these things that happen in our life, and it's, you know, it's. No one was miraculously healed, though. It can make us a little disappointed in our own life. Uh, you know, all my loved ones who have died, are still dead. Uh, most weeks, we don't see anyone come to faith. Truth is, we can't make those things happen. I mean, that's something we've got to understand. God makes them happen. We, we long for awakenings to see faith, right? But we can't cause them. I was reading a guy named uh, Bert Parsons recently, or this past week, and he said, awakenings happen only when God ordains it. Um, but like I said, we can be frustrated. So here's, here's what we need to understand in this text, okay? Forget the miracles for a moment. I'm not saying forget them like they didn't happen. They did, but just forget them so you can see something else for a minute. You know, once they fade out of the picture, what we see is, is people with simple faithfulness. Paul preaches. That's the ordinary means of grace in the word of God. Peter prays to God for a sister in the Lord. That's the ordinary means of grace in the act of prayer. These are people living with a, a simple love for God and a simple love for others. You know, If I'm honest about uh, the way prayer has worked in the life of the church at times, I, I think we've talked a lot about prayer, but we've spent little time organizing or, or intentionally doing so, and so uh, I'll tell you right now, this, this spring in a few weeks when the book study's in, we've been going through Ordinary, and when that comes to an end, uh, we're going to meet once a month at Bluestem Bistro, uh, a co-ed gathering, and, and we'll pray. We'll share some ideas. Uh, if you're there, you can add some things, share some things. If you're not, you can send those requests along. It won't be a long period of time. We'll, we'll gather, we'll pray, and we'll move on with our day. Saturday mornings. If you're able to make it, we'd love that. If it doesn't fit your schedule right now, that's okay. This is not one of those things that you've got to feel guilty about missing. So um, one last thing with our text today. Uh, this paralyzed man. Uh, I think sometimes we forget what happens later because the story didn't actually flesh it out for us. But this paralyzed man uh, eventually dies. Uh, Dorcas comes back to life. What an amazing thing. She's able to make more tunics and show more charity. Um but she also dies again. Uh, God gave them faith, though. They're going to rise one day to eternal life. And so what we see in this text are these small-scale reminders of the hope that we have in Christ that one day we'll arise with glorious bodies and a new life for all of eternity. And and so my hope as a church is that we would have um, faith in God to, to do the extraordinary Faith that God will do the extraordinary as we just remain committed to the simple, ordinary means of grace prayer, hearing and believing God's word and partaking in the sacrament, which we're going to do in just a few moments. Um, That's our hope for us, that we see the simple faithfulness in these people. Trust God to do amazing things. Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we may not often find ourselves as bold as Paul. But like he, we have looked to you for the forgiveness of our sin. Uh, Like we, like he, we have a voice. And so we ask that you make us bold in the right situations to speak the truth of the gospel for the sake of your glory and for the sake of completing the great commission you called us to. God, would you give us the same confidence you gave Peter in prayer? May we never lose sight that you you take those who are dead in their trespasses and you rise them to new life in Christ. Oh, that we might be blessed to see and to believe and to know that more and more. It's In Christ's name we pray. Amen.